Welcome to the NPS MedicineWise podcast, helping health professionals stay up to date with the latest news and evidence about medicines and medical tests. Hello and welcome to the NPS MedicineWise podcast. I'm Dr. Caroline West. I'm a practicing GP and an NPS MedicineWise medical advisor. Now, with the number of COVID infections surging over summer in Australia, attention is turning not just to our first-line measures of prevention with vaccines and their boosters, but also to medications to treat COVID. In a welcome development, two new oral COVID antivirals, malnupiravir, lagevrio, and nertramelavir and ritonavir, which is also known as plaxivir, bit of a mouthful there, have hit our shores and have been provisionally approved for use. GPs are getting ready once again to provide frontline management with these oral antivirals, particularly for those who are managing their infections at home. So on today's podcast, we're going to explore the questions around these medications, who's eligible, how effective are they, and most importantly, once the decision is made to go ahead with a COVID antiviral, how do you go about getting a script and supply? To talk through all of this and more, Associate Professor Charlotte Hespie and Dr. Kate Anir join me. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Caroline. Now, those of you who have been watching any of the webinars with the RSCGP will be familiar with Charlotte Hespie's work. She is a practicing GP. She's also head of general practice at Notre Dame University and chair of the New South Wales ACT faculty of the RSCGP. Dr. Kate Anir is also a GP and is the medical advisor to NPS Medicine Wise. Kate is a regular on our podcast team. So perhaps if I can turn to you first, Charlotte, the arrival of these new antiviral medications for COVID, these oral medications, is certainly a welcome development and it may influence the landscape of managing COVID at home. What's your take on this? Thanks, Caroline. Look, I do think it is a very welcome addition to our armamentarian of how we can deal with COVID. But I would put a sort of a cautionary note on that in that it is very much what I would call third tier and still not particularly well evidence-based in terms of our approach to managing Omicron. And if we look at emerging data, for us in Australia, the most powerful tool that we have is vaccination. And I'll say that again, it's vaccination. And then not just one and two, but it's actually the booster that's really providing the most powerful tool for us in the Omicron environment. I think we're getting even more data out as we go down the track, remembering that Omicron only reared its ugly head in the middle of December. So we're not that far down the track in looking at it. We sort of have forgotten that because there's been so much of it. Well, certainly in the east coast of Australia anyway, western coast has obviously remained fairly protected due to their closed boundaries. But for us, the infectivity and spread has been very, very scary for a lot and a real learning lesson. But the most powerful thing we've done is that booster dose. So that's why the push was boosters in the first place and certainly also to try and get the younger children included in vaccines. But we know that we still have vulnerable population groups and that might be despite boosters. So we all have got tales of people with boosters being in intensive care and or unfortunately dying. So who are those vulnerable patients? Exactly the ones that we have been worried about right from the start. So that's people in aged care facilities, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations and immunocompromised patients. So 
that's where it's nice to have an extra gun in our pocket, so to speak, to try and actually protect those patients. The big thing for me, and I know for everybody in the audience, is that you have to access it early. So it's a bit like thinking about shingles. If we wait too long, then the power of the medication goes. And that's exactly the same with these antivirals. We need to try and get them in in the first five days. And after that, then the usefulness is definitely not evidence-based. And quite honestly, the testing of these drugs has been not too bad, but it's in a non-Omicron population. So the power is from the Delta numbers and also in an unvaccinated population. And so in Australia, that's why we still are prioritising anybody who's not vaccinated. So not vaccinated, not fully vaccinated and who doesn't have a booster are the people that do a tick of the first box. And then as you work through your sort of tick box, it's about how more vulnerable are they and getting into that first five days. That's really the key. And I guess as you've talked about getting that message out there about vaccine being our best protection, because this is a treatment, it's not a preventative measure. This is once you've got COVID, that these may be included in the lineup. But as you say, for those vulnerable groups, it may be an added extra that we can at least offer in certain circumstances that could make a big difference. I guess when we're looking at these two oral antivirals, if I can turn to you, Kate, can you take us through, we'll backstep and we'll go back to the basics. What are these two medications that we're talking about and how do they actually work? Sure. Well, as you said, Caroline, they're both antiviral medications. So they're designed to interfere with the virus's ability to multiply, keeping virus levels low in the body and therefore reducing the severity of disease. So if we look first at molnipiravir, it's a nucleoside analogue. It mimics some of the building blocks of RNA, so it gets incorporated into viral RNA and causes an accumulation of errors in the viral genome. When enough mutations accumulate, the viral population collapses. Now, if we look at Paxlovid, this is a combination treatment. The Nermotrelvia component is a protease inhibitor that interferes with the SARS-CoV-2 replication cycle. Ritonavir is a strong cytochrome P450 inhibitor used as an enhancer to increase the exposure of Nermotrelvia. So basically what we're doing is we're sort of exaggerating the effect of the active ingredient. That's exactly right. By adding the Ritonavir, yep. Now, the significant and complex drug-drug interaction potential of Paxlovid is primarily due to the ritonavir component of the combination. And I've had a look at the contraindication list. It's pretty big, I have to say. So there are a lot of things to consider and often with a vulnerable group, there'll be one of those medications on the list that they're actually taking. How do people actually go and have a look at that list of things to consider well, it's a very extensive list, as anyone who's had a look at these medications will know, and that includes things like statins, medications such as oral contraceptives, uh, antifungals, antibiotics. It's it's a very long list. Mm. And the, probably the best way for GPs to have a look and see if they've got any of these potential interactions uh, with a patient is to look at the TGA website. Mm. The uh, product information uh, for Paxlovid is on that website. Also, the University of Liverpool has a COVID-19 drug interaction tool, and the link to that is available through the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force website. And that's a really effective tool to use as well to look for those interactions. 
we are talking about anomatrelvir and ritonavir here, which is plaxivid. So just for the audience, to simplify purposes, we will just be referring to plaxivid, which is obviously the brand name, not the generic, um, just to make it easier. So that's the one we're talking about with this long list of things to consider in terms of contraindications. And what's the story with this medication too in terms of risk for pregnancy conception? Well, actually, both medications, so Paxlovid and Ligevrio, uh, are not recommended in pregnancy or in breastfeeding. Uh, and that's for the period of time that you're taking the treatment and also for a period of time after it, uh, which varies between four to seven days, uh, depending on the medication. And it's also important that men with a partner who could become pregnant use contraception during and for three months after treatment with Ligevrio. Okay, so that's something else to think about. Certainly, as we've said, the contraindication list for the combination nermotrelvir and ritonavir, known as Plaxivid, is pretty long. And also factors like kidney and liver function need to be considered too. But just a bit of background, when we look at the other oral antiviral COVID medication, molnupiravir or Legevrio, we know that there are no known drug interactions, um, except for hypersensitivity to active ingredients, but data is pretty limited. That's why GPs will find that it's only this one medication, Legevrio, that's been sent to residential aged care facilities at this stage. If I can now go back to you, Charlotte, what have people already been asking about when it comes to the efficacy of these two medications? Is it already on people's minds yet? Yeah, and I think that's the difficult question to answer because, as I said, most of the evidence so far is around the use of it in the Delta and also in the, as I say, unvaccinated. So it's a bit tricky to fully answer that question for everybody. But is it going to be efficacious? Well, we don't really know, but we know that there is evidence of it helping and so that's why there'll be certain patient population groups that if you've ticked the boxes and you're in the time frame, it's worth them considering and then deciding for themselves if that's um, an option that they would like to try. And getting back to your previous points where we were talking about the importance of stressing vaccination, have you found that some people have, have sort of taken the line, oh, well, I'm not going to get vaccinated because these drugs are available and I'm just going to take them on an as-needs basis? Yeah, and my line is, well, at the moment you may well not qualify because you don't tick those other boxes. Um, certainly down the track, hopefully there will be enough medication around for the access to open up more widely to more people. But if they aren't vaccinated, then certainly they tick the first box. And, you know, it's difficult, isn't it? If you're very firmly in the camp of not vaccinating, then there's been very little, as we know, that's actually being able to change that level of consciousness, I suppose. And so it is nice as a doctor, because we don't like to think our patients are fully vulnerable, to be able to offer something to treat them if they do end up getting the infection. And we've talked already about the priority groups where we've got this national stockpile of medications, which is there for emergency use and also to regulate the supply in a, in a prudent fashion. So we've got the residential aged care facilities, we've got the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisations. Um, I've talked to some groups already and they've already received their first doses, which uh, don't have to be stored in the fridge they're just kept, I think, under 30 degrees. Is that right, Kate? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, they don't require refrigeration. There's a lot of tablets, can I say? That's the big disadvantage, and I don't think we mentioned that. 
Yeah, let's talk about that, Charlotte. You have to swallow, is it four every 12 hours? Yes, I think it's twice a day dosing and there's four or five capsules for one of them. Anyway, it's a lot of capsules to swallow. And so one of the disadvantages is that in our frail elderly population, that's actually quite difficult for them. And so, again, it's a consideration um, with respect to how you might take it. They are capsules. And so there was talk about you know, whether you can take them out of the capsules, but I believe that's not really recommended. It's very interesting you say that because we've just today gone live with some residential aged care facility Q&A, you know, commonly asked questions. And this has come up because the manufacturer, you're dead right, has said, look, they're supposed to be staying in their capsule form, but they recognise that there's a population that either have a nasogastric tube or they actually can't swallow one tablet or capsule, let alone four. And so there are actually provisos given that the Legrevio, which is the, help me with the pronunciation of the... Monopiravir. Thank you, Kate. I think you'll have to have a special tongue to be able to say that he's so smooth. I think so. Look, I think that's why, you know... Um, they've always got marketing to come up with a different name because they're actually quite a mouthful, especially when they're combo treatment. But right. but Kate, um, I know that this is something that's only just come out on our website, as I said, literally, I think today, which is guidance around, can you do this, even though it's sort of slightly out of bounds? We thought that in the past. What What is our thinking on that? And what have we got that's available for GPs working in residential aged care? Look, we've, we've got some information on how you might dissolve the capsules to be administered in a liquid form. And it's while this is an off-label use and there isn't evidence around this yet, uh, we, we recognise the practicalities and that, it, you know, in the residential aged care facilities, it may be necessary to do that. And so we've got some detailed uh, information on that on our website. Yeah, so that may help get around some people because quite frankly if you had somebody that couldn't swallow and they had to take it in the capsule form it may just be completely off the table the other thing is that i don't know what your experience is charlotte but i was talking to somebody a a gp that looks after people in residential aged care and they were saying that it's quite surprising and it's a sign of the times especially in remote regions that a lot of the residents do not actually have a gp which was incredible because it means that they don't have an advocate and a go-to person when something happens around COVID. Yeah, that horrifies me actually, Caroline. And so that might be something that we need to take off. I haven't, hadn't actually heard that I because I didn't know that you're allowed to be admitted to an aged care facility without having clinical governance in place, which would actually mean you need to have a prescribing GP. I'm sure that's the case. I guess that um, what they're referring to was somebody that was sort of actually assigned to them that was a very clear portal for, you know, this is your GP. They were saying only because services have been very patchy through COVID in a lot of the regional areas and getting GP access has actually been very tricky. And so a lot of the GPs left or, you know, their usual GP's gone and nobody's picked up the... I, I think that there are probably some people that have fallen through the gaps. So I'll go back to the clinical governance though. So the the nursing home definitely needs to make sure there is a GP and that there is someone that is prescribing it. And they won't be allowed to have supplies of the medication if they don't actually have that clinical governance in place. Yeah. So, you know, and I don't want any aged care facilities to not. So let's hope we can make sure that that is enabled across the more remote and rural across Australia, really. Mm. This is very much a national issue. 
And so getting back to sort of access and being regional and remote and even in the cities, this has happened where through COVID, telehealth has been encouraged to reduce the transmission rate within surgeries. And if something can be triaged on the phone, that's how it's done at the moment. What's the story with doing a telehealth consult and then prescribing? Is there any sort of onus to actually review the patient as would have happened in a respiratory clinic in the past, I guess? to actually then decide that they're, they're at that point or can you just do it on, you've had it for less than five days, you're in this risk group, let's go? Can I say that the model is exactly the same as all the virtual clinics? So none of the um, respiratory clinics required face-to-face contact. The models have been set up as virtual care um, and certainly in, my, in New South Wales, in my patch, that's been the care for COVID and people have not required face-to-face care. So it has been very much around symptoms. So when I say they don't require face-to-face care, of course they get face-to-face care in hospitals Mm. and or review in a respiratory clinic if required. But if we go back to the protocol for prescribing the antivirals, no, there is no requirement to have a face-to-face. It's all enabled through telehealth. And one of the things that we've really pushed for big time in New South Wales is that the GP who knows the patient is the person who has that conversation and prescribes if if it's actually deemed to be appropriate with each patient, mm. which for me is the best possible outcome because we know as GPs, we know our patients and we know, you know, most people would know who in their books were the ones that they would absolutely push for and try and fight for to get the access to antivirals if they got COVID infections. I was just going to ask, how do you think that will fit in with the recommendation that a rapid antigen test is clinically administered? Because that was something that I had wondered about. Okay, so the biggest thing is basically having a confirmed case of COVID. And so there's a couple of issues around that. What we've said in New South Wales is that you don't need a PCR, but you do need to have a registered test that is positive uploaded into our system to actually then enable you access to that medication. So that will mean a rat test. I might say it means a rat. For most people, it's either been a rat or a PCR. The PCRs, can I say, are much more accessible again. So it wasn't like that awful glut over Christmas when we just couldn't do anything. So hopefully that means everyone can get one because rat tests now are are actually quite easy to access again. I appreciate in some circumstances it's not. And what we're trying to make sure is if someone is, for instance, in a nursing home facility where there is confirmed infections with PCR positive and you've then got more, then it's not the biggest deal. It's basically being pragmatic and saying if they've got symptoms, then they've probably got it. But then hopefully the nursing homes have got access to the rats as well. Same with the AMSs. Again, for me as a GP in the community, If someone's in a family situation where there's someone who's positive and then a vulnerable person gets symptoms, it would be to try and make sure someone quickly accesses a rat for them or for us to try and find one so we can get them registered into the system with that rat and get the prescription organised for them as quickly as possible. And quite honestly, you can do that in a 24-hour period of time. You can sort of call together some of those networks acknowledging that there are some rural remote where that's difficult and I think that's where you might organise the prescription to get forwarding at the same time as making sure you've got some ability to get that formal registration happening. 
And Charlotte, what's your prediction for the landscape over the next three to six months? Obviously, at this stage, this is new turf for GPs. They're just getting their heads around what these medications are, what their role is in prescribing. What do you think will happen as the pandemic continues? I know I know everybody has a crystal ball. It's never quite as accurate as we'd like, but what do you reckon? Well, great question. If I'm talking about antivirals, what I can see is going to happen and what we're certainly trying to make sure the systems are in place is that access will be freed up so that there's more supplies available and more people will be able to qualify for them who we deem to be more vulnerable to getting infections. Um, So, you know, the chronic diseases, anyone with immunocompromised qualifies, certainly in New South Wales, I can write a script for anybody, doesn't matter how vaccinated they are. So just that will even out the supplies. Um, At the moment, we have to do a special script in New South Wales, and I'm well aware that other states have not been given that access. So hopefully the other states will open up to GPs being able to use their state-based prescribing to access until the federal government opens up us doing a freely accessible GP-generated PBS script that will be on our software. Yeah, because that's a bit of a barrier at the moment because it's not on medical software. So what I'm hearing from GPs is that they're having to scrounge around with website links and the like to get the lists. Yeah, look, can I say, well, in New South Wales, they shouldn't have to scrounge around. I'd really encourage everybody, if you aren't already doing it, use your health pathways. Every GP in New South Wales and most GPs in the rest of Australia do have a health pathways. I know that probably New South Wales has got the most resources up there, but for doing this prescribing, every single form you need is there. So you only have to go to one place and whatever form you need, um, and that is a, it is, they're, they're right, it's a particular form that is the prescription. And it is because of the special legislation that was needed in order to grant GPs access to prescribing that this has had to happen. And it does, it's it's crazy, but you do actually have to print it. You do actually have to put a physical signature on it and then you do have to email it, but you don't need to use a special email. You just email it to the pharmacy that is aligned with your region that can dispense the medication. And that list will be on the Health Pathways website as well. So sort of all that information is there if you're in New South Wales. Knowing it's not everywhere around Australia, feel green with envy, go ahead. Unfortunately, it's not so easy. And hopefully we're advocating that it will become broader. If it hasn't happened in the meantime, hopefully it won't be too long until it's just our medical software that does that script. Yeah, yeah, because I think at the moment people are not being given the script physically. As you say, it's got to be emailed or faxed through and that's also to, I guess, regulate the transfer of that script so it doesn't go elsewhere or get a duplicate. Yeah, that's and thank you, Caroline. That's an absolutely important thing to know. The patient must not be given the physical script Mm. because the physical script, the only place it goes is that pharmacy and the patient just has to, well, they will be contacted by the pharmacy about how that medication is then delivered to them. So the biggest thing to reassure them is they don't need a physical script. You know, the script goes to the pharmacy and the pharmacy will get the medication to them. It's interesting, isn't it? And I guess that if we're sort of thinking about what the potential is for this to really change the direction of COVID in terms of managing it at home, already we've got COVID in the home and we're, as GPs, frontline with managing people in the community wherever possible. But if I can go to you, Kate... What do you think 
it's going to be like in terms of the future of offering different opportunities to manage COVID to really align with what the patient wants to do as well. Well, I think we've had an array of treatments for COVID infections. So we've had various things available, immune modulators, monoclonal antibody treatments, and now obviously the more readily available oral antivirals. So I think it's an interesting space. And I think these oral antiviral treatments, really the, the benefit is that you can have them in the comfort of your own home or the residential aged care facility. So I think they will be utilised. But, you know, as Charlotte's mentioned, it's really in a subset of the population and it's only for people that are considered to be at high risk of a serious illness who, for whatever reason, have uh, not been fully vaccinated or are not immune competent or immunocompromised and I guess that we can't lose sight of this sense of a shared decision-making approach as well, that it's really important too that consumers, patients ask questions of their provider to work out, well, how can I think about this medication? Is it really the best thing for me to take? What are the benefits, risks? Is there some way to sort of put a framework around that that may be helpful for doctors and their patients in terms of what they need to be thinking about? Absolutely. Well, the choosing wisely framework is always useful in this context. So questions to ask your health provider about whether or not you should take these medications might include things like, do I really need this treatment? So have a discussion around the risk factors you might have uh, and what are the factors that might make you as an individual more likely to experience severe illness from COVID-19. Additionally, what are the risks? Talk about the possible side effects, any drug interactions that might occur ask if there are any simpler or safer options. Is it possible that the risk of side effects or interactions might outweigh any potential benefit in your individual case? And obviously the question of cost is always something that should be discussed, but we know with these medicines that at the moment there's no cost to the individual, but that may change in the future as the medication goes on the PBS. Yeah, definitely. And I guess that that's a matter of time and and lines up with what the evidence base is for that drug to be moved off the provisional list. Is that right, Charlotte? Yep, absolutely. And we're all obviously keenly awaiting more information about its power and efficacy in the Omicron space. What has impressed me, though, through this pandemic, which has been quite extraordinary, is the rate at which vaccines have come to market and been delivered in the community and now this array of medications. It's very impressive and my hat goes off to those who are the scientists on whose shoulders we stand as clinicians, you know, who've made that happen so rapidly. It's quite amazing. Yeah, and all the work, can I say? I mean, there's been an amazing sharing of people's work. I've never seen so much collaboration, which is fantastic, but then a lot of hard work. If you look at the TGA, they've put in extraordinary hours, as do ATAGI, as they try to weigh up the evidence and make the best decisions for us as a population. Yes, and I have great confidence in those bodies coming up with an expert opinion that I can depend on. I know that there are sceptical voices in the community often echoed in social media platforms, but when I'm talking to patients, I bring it back to this I do have a sense of trust that the evidence is reviewed with a level head and in these times some things are accelerated through. The gate's slightly faster than would normally happen with provisional registration but I guess the end point is to really deliver options to the community that are going to improve people's health and outcomes. Here we're still dealing with, thankfully in Australia, small numbers that are going to hospital but, you know, this is still a terrible virus that wreaks havoc on your system and can have ongoing consequences in terms of long COVID. And I don't think we can be lulled into this sense that, oh, Omicron's 
you know, not such a big deal and everybody knows people that have had mild doses of it. But, you know, we just need another variant to appear or you just need to be in a vulnerable risk group or there are other factors at play. And COVID is a nasty infection that kills certain people who are particularly vulnerable. We can't sort of ever get away from that central imperative. Could not but agree. How are you going, Charlotte, with just managing the COVID flow and the whole sense of answering questions to patients as they come in? Are you taking a proactive step to contact certain people or are you waiting for people to contact you? How's it working? Great question. One of the things that uh, certainly we've done in our practice is that we have put together the database of patients that we have more heightened awareness of vulnerability. So those who are immunocompromised not immunocompetent and we've sent out messaging to them about the availability of antivirals so that they can be aware that if they contract Omicron or they think they might have it that it's really important to make contact with us as soon as they can so that we can actually then have that conversation Um, and we've also accessed them to the sorts of resources that you've talked about so that they're as informed as they can be and if they're not interested then that's fine but if they would like to, then they can get it easily and quickly within the right time frame. And in the same way, we've done the same thing with patients in nursing homes and or who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to make sure they are also equally aware of the ability to access the medication if they qualify for it. And I suppose it's also a matter of staying up with the latest updates. I, I know this is a constantly moving space and it can be pretty exhausting for GPs to stay on top of everything. You know, they're frontline, their books are overflowing, they're doing masses of telehealth and trying to triage and then giving this extra advice. It's sort of a very interesting time for them to then take on board new medications and get the confidence to start prescribing. Because, you know, when something new comes on the market, you sort of get a bit tentative initially because you haven't got the prescribing experience. And it does take a little while for GPs to sort of understand how the system's going to flow and where the role of these medications fits in. Yep. Again, couldn't agree more. It's been a, a roller coaster ride for the last two years. And um, I, I fear that we've got a little bit more to go before the, the, the speed of that settles down. But I, you know, like the webinars, the fantastic resources, so NPS, Health Pathways, New South Wales Health, can I say, have got a fantastic set of resources. So even if you're from not in New South Wales, please go to the ACI where they actually have the most amazing database where they've been putting together all of the research as it comes in. Yeah. And it's just really fantastic just to be able to very easily see they've just got this group of doctors who are constantly working away at the evidence as it comes in. And then the college webinars, which are a partnership with New South Wales Health, have been fantastic because everything that we've tried, as everything comes aboard, we've been able to access the experts and be able to present the information. So just about the antivirals, the webinar that we did last week is still a relevant resource in terms of how to do it and also provide some links to the paperwork that you were talking about. Yeah, I had a look at that webinar and I was very impressed because it was really practical. They even had slides of the paperwork to take you through. boxes to be ticked and what you needed to fill in with that handwritten signature but I thought it was really practical and it's great to see the RSCGP has generated so many practical resources for GPs because quite frankly there's so much buzz on the internet when you go in there and you try to find information there's a lot of noise out there and so finding reputable sources is really key to making sure that your information is up to date and credible. 
Yeah, and can I say the difficulty is too, as GPs, we have to navigate the national stuff as well as the state and territory stuff. And that's been absolutely in our faces the whole time because there's an alignment, but not an alignment. So you sort of hear one thing, but then it's actually done a little bit differently within your state or your local region. And I think that's even made it harder for us as we sort of have to navigate it. And we are at the coalface, like it or not, we're the ones who have to help our patients walk through what it means for them. You know, the testing, the vaccinations, the managing at home, everything else. So we're, we're the experts when often we learn about what we have to be experts in from the media as it gets relayed through the Guardian, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian before we've even been told through official lines. Yeah, or press releases that come out, so detailing the release of certain medications or whatever. So, yes, and, and sometimes it will be a patient that alerts us to something that has rapidly changed overnight, and that's always interesting as well. I'm finding that a lot of patients are actually, COVID has been a great opportunity to sort of increase health literacy in a way because a lot of people understand the basics about viruses now and understand things that they perhaps didn't in the past because they've become very focused because obviously this has been a crisis. So it's extraordinary to see how it rolls off people's tongues when they talk about the COVID virus. Everybody's a public health expert and an epidemiologist. (laughs) They are. They've all got opinions. So and on the back of those resources, Kate, can you just remind us again, NPS Medicine Wise is endeavouring to really keep everybody up to date with practical information. What can people access on the website at the moment and what's in the pipeline? Sure. Well, look, we've got a whole heap of information on residential aged care facilities and using antivirals in this context. Uh, And that's mainly because we're getting a lot of questions coming from people working in this sphere. So that's already up and ready to go on our website. And we hope to add to that as experience and evidence grows uh, and expand it to apply to broad use in the broader community over time. We're also preparing a medicine table that summarises key information about the two oral medicines and also citrovimab as well. And new drug summaries by Australian prescriber on molnupiravir and the Paxlovid and another monoclonal also called Ronaprev will also be available early next week. So we intend to keep adding content resources and links as more information becomes available. So that's nps.org.au if you'd like to access any of those resources, whether you're a consumer patient or whether you're a medical professional. Thank you both of you for your time today. It's a really interesting time, I think, for our community. And I think that the arrival of new players on the field in terms of oral anti-COVID medications will be a welcome addition. As you say, both of you, that it doesn't in any way replace the need for vaccination as our most urgent preventative measure. But it's it's interesting to see this space evolve and to give access to GPs to this medication so that people can be more easily managed at home because a lot of people, that is definitely their preferred place to be. And it's a territory and an area of medicine that's constantly evolving. So I'm mindful of that. And it may be that this podcast has lost its relevance in just a few months from now because there may be even more options to discuss and so I'm mindful that this will be a continuing conversation and thank you to all the frontline workers and those behind the scenes who are working so hard during this pandemic to keep our community safe and well 
and to GPs like you, Kate and Charlotte, for just doing the hard grind of day-to-day being with people and helping them make these decisions to, to keep them in the best shape possible. So thank you both of you for being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Caroline. That's all we have time for. So once again, for more information, you can go to nps.org.au and CPD points are available for this podcast if you go to our website for details. I'm Dr. Caroline West from NPS Medicine Wise. Bye for now. For more information about the safe and wise use of medicines, visit the NPS Medicine Wise website at nps.org.au.